How are y'all this morning? All right. It's wonderful to be back with you. Um, it's wonderful to be back here in Westchester on a beautiful day. Um, I'm really excited to jump into the book of Mark uh, with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who, like me, have not been here the past couple weeks, uh, we're working through the book of Mark. It's one of the four narratives of Jesus' life that we call the Gospels. So the, gospel, the word gospel just literally means good news. And we're focusing on the earthly ministry of Jesus. And Mark is an excellent gospel for this. It's, it's actually one of my favorite books in the whole Bible to just read. I go back to it all the time because Mark is focused on the action. Mark is about Jesus doing stuff. So Mark is an especially great book to read if you want to learn more about Jesus and you're of the opinion that actions speak louder than words. And what we see throughout Mark is Jesus performing miracles, big miracles. And we're going to look at one of those big miracles today. And it can be our tendency when confronted with something like a miracle that might not fit into our day-to-day -day understanding of the world um, to try and kind of parse it out, to dissect the text around it. And what's really useful about the Gospel of Mark is it's focused on the action. It's focused on that miracle. It's focused on what Jesus did. And so you don't have much room to do that. You're forced to look at, hey, look at what Jesus did. Mark is telling the story of the impossible, not the possible. He is telling the story of what happened when a person of the Godhead, that is a member of the high and holy mystery, that is the God in three persons, the Trinity in one God, stepped down from that seat of honor, stepped down from the seat of power and majesty and took on humanity. What Mark is doing is he's testifying to you the things that happen in the life of the God-man Jesus. And I would say his underlying argument by showing immediately next in the next of the miracles is look at what he did look at his power what all these people saw him do who else what else could he be but the son of god and this series is called the crown and the cross because the gospel of mark like all the gospels marches towards the climactic moment of jesus's sacrificial death on the cross but before we get there before we get to the cross, Mark is going to make sure that we know who it was who willingly offered his life in place of ours. This was the rightful king, not just of Israel and Judah, but of all that is, has been, and will be. And so as we prepare to jump back into the narrative, as we jump into Mark, I, I just want to catch you up. He's most recently, he's been performing miracles. He's healed a leper. Jesus is growing in fame. I mean, he's, he's healing things that haven't been healed before. And so he's quickly, after beginning his ministry, Jesus finds himself a celebrity. Maybe even just a local celebrity, but a celebrity nonetheless. With all the attention and the difficulty that such a distinction brings. So follow along with me now as I read from God's word. This is the... Uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And as he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came. 
bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, Jesus said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, immediately picked up his bed, and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Dear Lord, I pray that as we look to your word, that you would speak to our hearts this morning, um, that you would break down our hearts of stone, that you would give us a transplant, that you would give us your heart, that we would be willing to hear your words, to hear your authority, uh, to, to listen to the good things you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. There's something about somebody who has real authority um, that you just know it when you encounter it. Like when you come across somebody who has authority, it, it's, it's obvious. And it's equally obvious when somebody lacks authority. You know, I remember uh, back, I was working towards becoming a history teacher, and right before I did student teaching, somebody warned me about saying, hey guys, or come on guys. There's something profoundly sad about a teacher who has lost control of their classroom just speaking and said, hey guys, come on guys, into the void and nothing happening. Hey guys is an attempt to gain respect without losing the jovial right to call each other guys. You know, I have this really distinct memory from middle school uh, where my eighth grade English teacher had completely lost control of the class, like standing up, people putting things out the window, just nuts. And she was, come on, come on, guys, come on, let's take our seats. And nothing was happening. And in walked the assistant principal, who everybody kind of respected and feared, and everybody was back in their seats. And I don't even know how it was possible how quick some of those kids were back in their seats. They were up standing on something, and suddenly they're back across the room in their seats, as if by like a force of nature. We listen to people in authority. We trust people in authority. It's why we call someone an authority in the field when we consider them an expert in that field. In this passage of Mark, uh, you know, I really see Jesus do all these things associated with authority. He, he sets himself up as an authority. He presents himself as an authority. He justifies his authority. And that authority demands our attention. And, and that's really how I'm going to break this down as I go through this. Those are, those are going to be, the as we move through this story, so I'll say that again. 
we see Jesus set himself up as an authority. And then when he's questioned, we see him justify that authority. And the conclusion of this story shows us that his authority does not ask for our attention. Its very presence demands our attention. Uh, so let's look at the first couple verses here. And I think it helps to really picture the scene. It's a really, you know, it, it's told in a couple verses, but it has this really um, vivid uh, vivid quality to it. So Jesus has returned to his home base, which the previous chapter would lead us to believe is Peter, the apostle Peter's mother-in-law's house. Um, this would not be a large house. It would probably be kind of one room, kind of flat roof structure. Um, we might think of it like a cinder block structure, you know, something like that. And the roof was like a thatched roof, kind of wooden beams with just a bunch of earth and kind of hay and stuff like that mixed together to keep it waterproof. And, and Jesus is in there, um, and since he's been healing the sick, people have shown up. They've filled that room, easy. And now they're blocking the door, is what we're told. It is packed. So there are these friends, there are these men who are carrying their paralyzed companion, their paralytic companion. And they get to this crowd, and inside Jesus is teaching. It's not like he's... You know, it's not like there's this line of healing and people are going in and out and they just have to wait. He's teaching, so it's, it's set. And everyone inside, though, they're waiting for a spectacle. They're here to see him do a miracle. And these guys who need a miracle can't get in. So they cut their way in. Now, apparently I read it's common because the roof needed repairs a lot to have like a little stairway that went up there. But the, but the roof is, it's not, this isn't a clean job cutting in there. It's not like, you know, it, it's not like they're subtle here. If they're cutting into a roof made of dirt, it is raining down into this building. It is raining down into this room. Well before they arrive, there has been a commotion. There has been a scene. And so Jesus is probably prepared that something is happening. But in comes this guy lower down. And in all this chaos, because this is inevitably going to be chaotic, Jesus recognizes the faith of the men, and he immediately grants their prayer. The thing that drove these men all these great lengths. He looks on that paralyzed man, and he forgives his sin. That probably wasn't what brought those guys there. These guys are here to get their friend healed. They're there to get their friend's back and legs and body to work again. But Jesus stops and says, first things first. I can see that this guy is paralyzed. I can see that he, he needs healing. But let's handle the most urgent problem right now. This guy needs grace. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a situation like a doctor's office where you have a disagreement with the doctor about what's the highest priority. I remember when I was in college, I had a bad habit of hurting myself all the time. I had a concussion history. And one time I hurt myself so spectacularly that I got a concussion and then sprained my ankle falling down from the concussion. And I had to go see the doctor about it. Now, I was mostly concerned about the sprained ankle. I just wanted a brace for my sprained ankle. I didn't care about my sixth concussion. That's yeah, one, six. 
my doctor felt differently because she knew what was actually the most urgent condition. She was an authority on the human body. She was like, this is the thing that's going to bother you late in life. The sprained ankle will heal. Jesus sees this man being lowered down and immediately from a position of authority declares your most urgent condition is the state of your heart, not your back, not your legs, your heart. The state of your relationship with your creator, his physical brokenness paled in comparison to his spiritual need. And this is an important moment. And and in a second, the story is going to kind of sweep us away from here. But I do want to pause and just linger here because I think there's a little application here for all of us. Like any time in history, it it is painful and hard to be paralyzed, to be broken, to have your body not work the way it's supposed to. In the ancient world, there is nothing for him. There is no... He is basically able to be a beggar, and that is it. The fact that he has friends who are still caring for him is, is an amazing blessing. To say to this man, this one, that your chief need right now is your right standing with God is a statement to everyone in that room listening to him and everyone who hears this story from this point on. Your chief need is never a change in your circumstances. It is your chief need lies in your relationship with the eternal living God. You have sinned, you have rebelled, and you need forgiveness. Every one of you. Whether you're victim, victimizer, whether you're the victim of unfortunate circumstances or you're blessed with amazing circumstances, you're in need of grace. But just because Jesus sets himself up as an authority, just because he says this stuff, just because he says, listen to me, this guy needs grace, doesn't mean that everyone in the room is going to go along with it. doesn't mean that they're going to you know, just listen to him. doesn't mean that they're going to respect it. We've seen plenty of people you know, demand respect who don't deserve it or earn it. Heck, we don't have to listen to it and we don't have to believe this story. Especially because what he's just said, your sins are forgiven, is something that according to the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures of the Jewish people, our Old Testament, there was only one singular being who had the authority to forgive sins. And that was God himself. In that setting, In that time, in that place, Jesus was without question saying to everyone in that room, by the authority of God, I forgive this man. And so the people in the room who know the scripture start thinking, and rightfully so, did this guy just claim to be God? Like, that's how big a deal what Jesus did just there was. You know, if he is just a man, if Jesus is not God, then what he did really was blasphemy. It was profaning the name of God. It was lowering God's name to raise himself up. But they oddly don't point it out. They just think it. You know, maybe the room got real quiet, but nobody said anything. But that's when Jesus justifies his authority. 
he senses what they're saying, and he asks them a question. I love Jesus. Jesus always asks a question. He always gives an opportunity for other people to speak. He gives an opportunity for them to express what they believe. But in this situation, he asks them a question they can't answer. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk? It's funny, there's two parts to this question. Both are equally easy to say. I mean, one's a little longer, but you can say either one of them. But both are also completely outside of my ability to make happen by my words. These guys can't answer him because it's outside the realm of their authority. They are not authority on what it takes to do either of those two things. You know, uh, there was a time uh, while I was, this is a while ago, I was working before and after school care. Um, It's, you know, kind of before class starts and after class ends for parents who need to work a normal time frame. And it was a lot of fun, but there was one problem. Our authority was completely theoretical. (laughs) If the children ever questioned us, we didn't have anything we could actually do to punish them. I mean, we're just after-school workers. There's nothing I can, all I can do is tell your parents, basically. My authority only goes as far as I can convince the children I have authority over them. Like, no, do your homework. No, we're, we're going to play this game now. It, it was all theoretical. The house of cards that we lived in was that, like, some kid was just going to realize, do something we didn't want. It was like, oh, we're, well, you've got you've to sit out. And the kid just say, no. What could we do? We had, was, we could concoct penalties, but really, unless, unless it really crossed the line, we had to convince the kids that we had authority over them. And that's frankly how a lot of our world works. A lot of things operate because we all agree they should. Paper money works because we all agree it does, and because it's backed by some power. You know, paper money falls apart when when the government can't put its power behind it. So when Jesus senses his authority to forgive is questioned, he doesn't panic like the after-school daycare worker. No, Jesus says, let me show you that I have the authority to do what I said I did. He has the power to make his authority real on this earth. And there's nothing compartmentalized about his authority. It's it's holistic. It's complete. He speaks words of wellness to both this man's soul and to his body. We don't get to mince words about it, about whether Jesus has the right or the authority. He has it and he shows it and it demands our attention. And that's my final point here. Look at the immediate response to Jesus' words and actions. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. He has the man walk out through the crowd. He doesn't go up back through the hole. They know this guy. He walks close enough for them to recognize him. He lives in this town. 
This wasn't some parlor trick. The man they knew was paralyzed is walking past this crowd, through this crowd. They have to stand up, move aside, physically take notice that something massive is happening here. Someone is here who commands the body to be well, and the body responds. And that man is out here forgiving sins, too. It's not surprising then that they marvel, they're amazed at what, at what they see. I love this language. I think too often we don't let ourselves really be amazed, really see the marvelous, really just take it in. It's really rare that we get shocked out of our state of being by something that is wonderful. I remember... Uh, being dragged on a family vacation as a teenager and just being miserable, really ruining the vacation for everyone. I think it was, it was down at Disney World, you know, 17 year old, years old, and just broke up with my girlfriend, just being terrible. And we're going with a bunch of people to see a circus. Sounds horrible. Turns out it was Cirque du Soleil. I don't know if any of you ever seen Cirque du Soleil. It is a stunning display of what the human body is capable of. It is overwhelming. I was trying to be awful that whole night, and I was wowed out of it. I couldn't be the same for the next two days of the vacation. I wasn't awful as awful anymore because I had been proven wrong. There are good things that are worth enjoying. <laughs> I see some of you know 17-year-olds. Um, when, you, when you are confronted with something truly amazing, truly marvelous. It forces you to re-examine what you know. And that's what Jesus done. He just blew their minds. They came looking for a spectacle too. They were expecting a miracle. And what Jesus did was beyond their expectations. Their words say it. That experience would, re would force you how to think, how you think about the, that experience would force you to rethink how you saw the world. A man just claimed to have the power to forgive, and he healed a broken, paralyzed man with only his words. With only his words. And that last bit is important, the words. Because it takes us back to how the biblical narrative of creation goes. How does God make the world? He doesn't form it. You know, as you think of... Um, you know, the, the parallel stories of creation, even in the ancient Near East, it's like gods being killed and their bodies being made into the soil or, you know, drops of blood forming islands. There's this very physical interaction. God speaks in the biblical narrative and the world responds. Matter comes into being. Light comes into being at only the sound of his voice. He uses words to form his perfect creation. And yet, that perfect creation has been broken. The stewards he made that he, the one, the physical act of creation we see is him forming man and breathing life into him. Man made in his own image, his steward of his good and perfect creation broke it. In, he rebelled against God. 
we rebelled against God. And by that sin, we broke this world. And yet here is this man, Jesus, using words to unbreak a small portion of that creation. This man is paralyzed. That's of such, that word just speaks to, you know, we think of broken backs, broken, spine, broken nerves. There's a real brokenness to that condition, oftentimes when we see it. And it's in your core, it's your ability to move. And yet with words, Jesus restores that. He remakes it and makes it whole. And it isn't like, oh, he's on the road to recovery. He hops up, grabs his mat, and starts going. And as with his words, Jesus is also promising to restore something bigger, a more desperate need. We've told, we've seen Jesus is saying, your more desperate need is your state with God. He's promising to restore the original brokenness, the rebellion that separates us from God and his perfect goodness. He's claiming to have that kind of authority. That's great news. These people are excited because that is great news. And I believe that it is. I believe that what Jesus is promising is the finished work of Jesus, his death on the cross that bore our sin and blame, that separated us from our creator, and the empty tomb that promises that death is not victorious, that life awaits those who come to receive Jesus' healing with faith like the faith of these men who brought their friend. That promise, that promise of Jesus' healing is my great hope. That promise is greater than the sum of all my circumstances. The suffering and the hurt and the pain that are distributed in such evil and unfair world, ways in this life, we see that. Those things no longer have authority over me. There's someone who speaks words over them, but more importantly than any of those or what I'm going through, he speaks with authority over the central problem of my life. And I'm no longer a slave to those circumstances because I've been bought out of them with the blood of Jesus Christ and, and not bought to be a slave, not bought to be a servant, but as a son of the Most High King. We are bought to be sons and daughters of the Most High King, the creator of the universe. But in that comes a part that sometimes we don't always like so much. Sometimes in understanding this, we find parts of this offensive because, I mean, even particularly as good red-blooded Americans, independent Americans, we don't like the idea of a king. And even more so, a king like this. Well, this king would have authority over not just my stuff or taxes or things like that, but this king, he has authority over everything. The spiritual and the material. All of those respond to the words that he utters. This isn't just an inner life question. This is a whole life question of authority. And I think that forces us to recognize what is the faith that Jesus was recognizing in this passage. Jesus says he looked up at their faith. He recognized the faith of the guys who carved in. What's that faith? 
surrender. These guys just committed a felony. That's breaking and entering. These guys just put themselves at the will of Jesus. In all, Think about how helpless the state of their friend is who they lowered in. He was already probably feeling helpless in his physical condition, and they put him in even more helpless condition. A crowd is watching this. If this goes badly, these guys got nothing else. They've put it all out here. This is surrender. Their lives are on the line. They need Jesus to say yes. Often we equate faith with something different. We equate it with coming to Jesus to fix the things that we want fixing. We want Jesus to have a little bit of authority over our life. Tim Keller often says, we want Jesus as a consultant more than as a king. But that's not the offer on the table. It's not a pick and choose sort of faith. When you come up to this, it's like you go back to the idea of of school. It's not like you say, I'm going to follow some of the rules, but I don't agree with all these rules. It's It's not the state of our authority. That's not the balance here. You know, I... We often, when we talk about faith within the church, talk about the reality that that we're like people in a burning house who need to be saved. Like that should be our urgency to share this good news that there is a savior. But oftentimes we react as if we're being saved by this fireman who's broken down. We were trapped in the burning building and he's telling us, look, you can't do this. You can't plug 30 sockets into, 30 plugs into one socket. You caused this electrical fire, and we want to respond, don't tell me how to live my life. It doesn't show, living like that doesn't show intellectual independence. It doesn't show like our own ability to think for ourselves. It demonstrates foolishness. You know, the principal question that we come to when presented with this Jesus, the Jesus of the gospel, the king, who has rightful authority, isn't whether we're able to pick out the good parts of Jesus' teaching. They're all good. I'll give it to you. It's easy. No. It comes down to this question that where we are in Mark is still to be answered. What we know is true. Did he really rise from the dead? Did he really do what he said he would do? That he would bear our sins on the cross? that after three days he would rise from the dead. And if Jesus did do that, if Jesus defeated death like I believe he did, if he did that so that I might live, when I'm the cause of my own destruction, well, I can look at that equation and I can see who is the one person who has the right and who has the authority to rule my life. And it's not me. It's our rightful King Jesus. Let's pray.